Over the course of this past few months since the uh, New Year's, beginning of our century, um, been working through a series of teachings on Monday nights that are the fundamental or essential teachings of uh, Buddha and Buddhism. Um, and we just have a couple more weeks, I think, in this series. Tonight I'd like to talk about one of the most central and, uh, in a way, most beautiful um, principles or understandings in all of the Buddhist tradition, which is the way of the bodhisattva. And bodhisattva is a compound word. Bodhi means awakened or liberated, and sattva means being. So a bodhisattva is a being who is committed to the awakening of all beings that exist. And uh, it's traditional in certain communities that um, practitioners will actually make a public announcement that they've entered the path of the bodhisattva, certain vows that they will take to raise the bodhi mind or awaken the bodhi heart. Um, or to orient their lives as if finding a compass through the changing circumstances of life. And the vows, which I'll talk about more perhaps as we go on, um, one version of the four vows is sentient beings are numberless. I vow to awaken them all. It's a serious vow here. Um, <laughs> The passions and um, entanglements of the world are inexhaustible. Um, I vow to release them or free myself from them all. Um, the dharmas and the teachings are, Im are immeasurable. I vow to master them all. And the way of the Buddha is incomparable and I vow to attain it fully. So some small kind of uh, promises. Let me see how to begin to speak about this. As one undertakes a spiritual life in the many traditions that various of us have practiced in, um, we discover the fact that spiritual life is not linear, that it proceeds in cycles and waves and it goes up and down and in and out. Um, I like to read this passage, where is it, from uh, Be Here Now, just saw Ram Dass the other day, where he says practice is like a roller coaster. Each new height is usually followed by a new low. Understanding this makes it a bit easier as you go through the phases. And then in addition to the up and down cycle, there are the in and out cycles. That is, there are stages at which you feel pulled to inner work and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and get on with it. And then there are the times when you turn outward and seek to be involved in the marketplace. Both of these are part of one's cycle of practice for what happens to you in the marketplace helps in your meditation. And what happens in your meditation helps you to participate in the marketplace without attachment. The fact is that these cycles um, are simply a reflection of the truth of impermanence. That spiritual life is not what we plan. Almost always it's that way. Because life isn't what we plan. It's actually what we get, which is very different. Um, from these interviews in this new book that I've been working on, speaking to various Zen masters and gurus and swamis and lamas and mamas and stuff about their practices. <laughs> As a young Catholic, I was inspired by the saints. I had always wanted to do things like work with Mother Teresa in India, but most of my life has not been so glamorous. After college, I became a teacher in an elementary school. And then my mother had a stroke and I had to drop out of teaching and help her for two years, bathe her, care for her bed sores, cook, pay the bills, run the house. 
At times I wanted to complete these responsibilities and get back to my spiritual life. And then one morning it dawned on me, I was doing the work of Mother Teresa. I was simply doing it in my own home. So we have all these ideas, the kind of glamours of spiritual life. Um, But what's important is to actually take the life that we've been given and make that our spiritual life, make that our practice. And to do this, we have to learn how to not compartmentalize. Because the modern world has a time for everything, a time for church or a time to come to Spirit Rock and meditate, you know, sacred time. Then there's business hours, right? Time for money, and then there's time for sex over here, and there's time for a relationship with your family, and time for service or being in nature, as if they really were separate things. And so we have this sense of sacred being one thing and non-sacred being another, as if that were, as if that were true. It's actually nutty, but anyway. Or as my teenage daughter would say, that's stupid, Dad. That's her favorite kind of analysis of adult world these days. (laughs) Sometimes I think she's pretty accurate. So an old Trappist monk friend of mine, Father Theophane, tells this story of the Magic Mountain, which is a Magic Mountain monastery where the true gifts of spiritual life are found. I knew there were many interesting sites, but I didn't want any more of the little answers. I wanted the big answer. So I went directly to the magic monastery and asked the guest master to show me to the house of God. I sat myself down, quite willing to wait for the big answer. I remained silent all day, far into the night. I looked him in the eye, or her, I guess. I guess he was looking me in the eye, too. Late, late at night, I seemed to hear a voice. What are you leaving out? I looked around. I heard it again. What are you leaving out? Was it my imagination? Soon it was all around me, whispering, roaring. What are you leaving out? What are you leaving out? Was I cracking up? I managed to get to my feet, head for the door. I wanted the comfort of a human face or a human voice. Nearby was the corridor where some of the monks live. I knocked on one cell. What do you want, came a sleepy voice. What am I leaving out? (laughs) Me, he answered. I went to the next door. What do you want? What am I leaving out? Me. A third, a fourth cell, all the same. I thought, they're just stuck on themselves. I left the building in disgust. Just then the sun was coming up. I had never spoken to the sun before, but I heard myself pleading, what am I leaving out? The sun, too, answered, me. That finished me. I threw myself on the ground and the earth said, me too. So one of the central questions in spiritual life is, what are we leaving out? What are the compartments we make? And there's incredible suffering from the outer compartments. Because when we compartmentalize, we can have the kinds of injustice in our society or in our world between one group of people and another. We can have two million people in prison and a lot of other people that kind of ignore the fact that those two million people are in prison, that it's doubled in the last 10 years um, in our society. Um, Tremendous suffering from the outer compartments. But in spiritual life, we can fall into the inner compartments as well. So I tell the story sometimes of a monk that I came to know and admire, who was working in Burma for the liberation of Burmese people. Burma's situation is really quite terrible. And he was leading demonstrations and peace marches and trainings and then fled into the jungle when his life was threatened by the military and set up a monastery in one of the jungle camps on the border of Thailand. And um, he'd been sick with malaria, and he'd um, really inspired a lot of people, quite an amazing figure. And I became friends with him. And one day a mutual friend said, you've got to come, he's really in trouble. He's uh, thinking of immolating himself. So I went to visit him. And we sat down at this talk, and he said, I am in despair. The military government doesn't listen. The world doesn't pay attention to the 
suffering of the Burmese people, and the only thing I think that will make a difference is if I pour gasoline on myself and burn myself. I thought this was kind of drastic, even though I admired the monks who did it, but it seemed a little dramatic to me. So we kind of went on in our conversation, and I said, do you really think it's that bad, and is that your best contribution? And as we talked for a while, it turned out that that wasn't his only problem. The problem was, in addition to Burma, that he had fallen in love with a young lady that he met, who this Thai girl who came to his monastery on the border of Burma and Thailand and begun to give him food and feed and care for him in a proper way, as one does for a monk. And they began to talk, and after a while she became indispensable, and then he fell in love. And he didn't know what to do. He'd been a monk for 20-some years. He couldn't imagine not being a monk and kind of getting involved, disrobing, getting a job and getting married to her. But he also couldn't imagine living without her. So his simple solution was just to immolate himself. (laughs) And I looked at him and I said, listen, you know, you survived malaria, you survived typhoid, the military dictatorship, the guns, all these things. You marched hundreds of miles from Rangoon to the border. You kept this temple going. You know, you faced the sorrows of Burma and one intimate relationship and you're ready to immolate yourself. (laughs) Come on. Fortunately, he didn't do it. But it's easy to repeat the kind of separation in our culture where the sacred's here and business is there, to do the same thing in our spiritual life and to have that sense that something is spiritual and something else isn't. When we begin to open ourselves in a deep way, as this, here's a, one Zen master spoke of. He said, on the day, on the retreat, that I was able to release all the thoughts of past and future and let go of desires, I felt a little strange, as if I was carried into something new, touching some new strange quality. And then I lost the boundaries of my body. I had my skin, of course, But I felt like I was staring in the center of the cosmos. I spoke, but my words lost their meaning. I saw people coming toward me, but all were the same person. All were myself. I'd never known this world. I'd believed I was created, but now I had to change my whole view of life. I was never created. I was the cosmos, and no individual ever existed. And that's not some kind of Zen philosophy, but it's an experience that many of us have. At all different times, it will come to us in our life because it's the truth. So then what does one do with it? The realization of this final insight, now you know how to leave everything alone without falling under its spell, yet unafraid of it. This is in a Tibetan teaching. And in this liberation, which is not separate, there arises or is born in you exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do not realize their their true essence, the essence of their heart. And you will spend your lifetimes working for the sake of these others, but all your meditations have cleansed away any idea that these others really exist as separate from yourself. So that's a little bit hard to understand in some way. It's a kind of big set of words and ideas and pointing to a really amazing truth. But yet something in us knows that it's also the reality. And so the profound question of this human life, if we undertake a spiritual path, is how do we then embody that? understanding. How do we live it? Not just as an ideal, but day to day. Because it's easy to be idealistic, but if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars, said William Blake. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the flatterer, and the scoundrel. So a few things. First, to fulfill this in every part of our life, this awakening, 
we need to understand that life is difficult, that there is suffering, and that it's full of paradox, that there's the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, and that no one is free from that, no human being. And certainly there are more blessed lives than others, but everyone um, has at times reasons to be afraid. And everyone feels vulnerable. I talked about it when we did this opening ceremony for this great new homeless shelter in uh, Novato yesterday, Homeward Bound. And Sylvia Borstein was there and James Barras and a whole bunch of ministers and rabbis and stuff and lots of Buddhists, James and Sylvia Ramdas and myself and others. And, you know, I just talked about how we, in this culture, we all try to be independent and strong and we're ashamed of dependence and of vulnerability. And yet there's not a single human being who isn't vulnerable. And so how do we touch that? So this, this human realm is one of sorrow and loss and death and change and of birth and beauty and creativity equally. And to undertake the path of the bodhisattva, as we, just as we take a seat in meditation, means that we must open ourselves to how strong the fear and the longing is within us, the loneliness and the sense of separation, even though we are connected. We don't always feel that, our greed. And at the same time, also to find that which is noble, a kind of integrity or presence in the face of that whole paradox. Richard Heckler, a good friend and teacher of Aikido and other things, wrote a, a book called In Search of the Warrior Spirit that described his several years training with the Green Beret, in which he took um, meditation, gestalt, bodywork, martial arts, a variety of things, into the American military to try to train them, saying his, a lot of his friends wouldn't talk to him while he did this. They thought that was really the wrong thing to do. But he said, if we have to have a military, let's have a more conscious military. That was his principle. Anyway, the thing that he did that was the most unusual, they were cool with martial arts. I mean, these were guys who were, you know, doing um, halo jumps, high altitude, low opening um, at night, you know, into the ocean and then crawling through the surf onto the rocky beaches and things. So these were, these were um, men who kind of had the macho part down pat. Um, and he said, okay, we're going to do a month he had them do a month silent retreat in the woods, okay? And they had this little kind of place that they met with the veranda. And he said, the men said they had faced everything, you know, in, in the jungles in Asia and various things like that. This was the toughest thing they ever did. So here he is telling the story. He said, I come in to the meditation hall, you know, and first there's the clumping of army boots, and then there's the placement of the M16s next to the Zafu, right? And then I hear this deep breathing, and I look around, and after 20 minutes, the atmosphere is charged, alive, intense. I open my eyes and look. The one of the seated figures, the person toward my immediate right, seems especially still, and I look at him. He's sitting straight, motionless, alive, present, his deep breath, his awareness is very obvious. And then I'm, my eyes caught by the black t-shirt that hugs his huge biceps and barrel chest and printed across it is a large skull and crossbones that says 82nd Airborne Division, death from above, right? Something is wrong. People don't wear t-shirts like this at meditation retreats, I tell myself. But the person inside the t-shirt looks like someone at a meditation retreat, and they look like they're meditating, another voice says. I look back. 82nd Airborne Division, death from above. I have no mental file for what I see. Killing and meditation simply do not go together. So there is this paradox, and we carry it all the time. And to not know it and to not respect it um, is suffering. Because here we walk in our supermarket, talked about it last week, and we have the food of emperors and empresses, of kings. Um, and yet at the same time, we know there are people hungry 
in our country, not to speak of in all these other places in the world. And something in us carries both of these truths. We feel our freedom and liberation, and yet we drive by and there's San Quentin. You know, and you might say, well, those are bad people who do bad things. But you know that that's not the whole story, because it isn't, you know. There's much more to it. There's more and more young people in prisons. And there's more and more people in prisons who are there um, because of where they were born or what their skin color is. So if we're to be, if we're to orient ourselves as a bodhisattva, the first understanding is that we have to see the suffering of the world as well as its beauty and face it. And it doesn't mean that you then immediately have to get up and do something. It's just to be able to be open to what is true is the first step. In some ways, when we come to a meditation class or a retreat, the idea isn't that you're supposed to learn something or get something. As I've said in many other retreats, this is actually the dump. This is the place to let go of stuff, whether it's our fear or our confusion or um, the you know, greed that we're caught up in or anger. Um, to find some way to release ourselves from entanglement in that or our tension that we carry so that we can go out and meet the world with an openness, with a uh, tenderness, with a presence. And yet as we let go, there also develops a trust as we let go of what we call the small sense of self, the body of fear that's always worried and planning, judging. There comes some innate sense of centeredness or integrity or authenticity that is who we really are, a sense of trust, trust in our being, a trust that our heart can open, a trust in the mind. As Ajahn Sumedho said, read this a couple of weeks ago, the mind and heart is like space. There's room in, them, in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know the space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, tragedy, comedy, or nothing at all. All things can come and go. Thoughts, all things can come and go through us without being caught in reaction or resistance. This is the true practice of letting go or letting be. And so maybe the first step is just finding this innate openness, which is here all the time. In a moment, we can reawaken to it. But we only can do it when we acknowledge that life's difficult and that part of what we'll face you can't run away from is the sorrows as well as the joys. And then to bring this into the world, the second principle is setting our inner compass, the compass of the heart, in the direction of the bodhisattva, the archetype of the bodhisattva, the being who brings these worlds into the heart of compassion, the whole world. And so there are all these um, vows that are really an expression of this direction. Now, even if the sun should arise in the west, said Suzuki Roshi, the Bodhisattva has only one way. Even if the world is completely turned upside down, even if the most unexpected or difficult things happen, our compass says, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to awaken them all. Inexhaustible are the passions and entanglements, I vow to be released from them all. Or there are other ways of saying these vows. I vow to save all beings from difficulties. I vow to destroy all evil. I vow to learn the truth and teach all others. I vow to lead beings toward their own Buddhahood. Or I vow to deliver beings from suffering and to cut off all afflictions and to learn all approaches to awakening and to fulfill the universal enlightenment in everything I touch. And there's all these different translations. 
Now, if you listen to that, it's a, a rather daunting, especially when you think hundreds of thousands of mahakalpas that we talked about a week or two ago, um, lifetime after lifetime. You know, and does it mean that we have to rush around the world and solve all the world's problems and go around and save people one, and, one at a time? I hope not. Um, what it means is that we have to listen in our own heart to our particular gifts and capacities and cycles and use what we have been given to contribute our piece of compassion and wakefulness to the world in which we've been born. It's not about being idealistic, but of allowing the heart to open enough that we can respond with sensitivity and willingness and understanding and compassion, because that's what the world needs. In the circumstances of your life. My favorite story about this, which I haven't told for a while, is that of Vinoba Bhave. And Vinoba Bhave was the chief Dharma disciple of Mahatma Gandhi. And when Gandhi was assassinated in 1948 or 49, the beginning of India um, as a nation, the whole Gandhian movement was in disarray for several years. People were so dispirited and um, disheartened. And then finally, they began to get together as disciples and say, we have to do something. Um, we can't let Gandhi's spirit die with him. There's so much other work to do in this country. And so they went to Vinoba, who was the chief disciple of Gandhi, and said, would you lead a Gandhi Congress for all of India to start the work again? And he said, no, you know, we can't recreate the past. It's done. It's finished. We can't bring Gandhi back. But they begged him. And finally, after a long time, he said, all right, I will go to the Congress, but you must postpone it for six months to give me time to walk across India, because I have to listen. And so he began to walk with a few people from village to village and meet with people under the tree in the center of the village and hear their stories. And in the middle of Maharashtra, or wherever he was walking in this village, some people came so poor and they said, we haven't enough food to eat. And Vinoba said, you must learn to grow your own. You must grow gardens, fields. You must do this. And they said, oh, Vinobaji, we would do so, but we are untouchables and we are not allowed to have land. We've never had land. No, it's not possible. So Vinoba meditated for a bit and he said, I'll tell you what, when I go back to New Delhi, I'll speak with Prime Minister Nehru, who I know, and we'll get a law passed in Parliament in this new country that the untouchables will get land. He was pleased with himself. They were all very happy and went to sleep. But he woke up in the middle of the night and he realized that, you know how governments are, it might take years to do that. And by the time the land went through the Indian states and provinces and districts and counties and village headmen and so forth, and everybody took their piece, there wouldn't be much left for the untouchables. So he called them together in the morning and he said, I don't know how to help. I don't think that's the way. And one man stood up and said, you know, in the spirit of Gandhiji, who was assassinated, how much land do these people need? 16 families, five acres each, 80 acres. It was a village, the rich man of the village. I will give them 80 acres. And Vinobaji said, no, can't take your land. You must go first home. Speak with your wife, your children who will inherit the land to make sure you can give it away honorably. So he went back. They said yes, and he returned. The land was given and accepted. And then Vinoba walked on to the next village. Same kind of story. People met together, untouchable, 20 families. We have not enough food to eat. We are so poor, we starve. Can't you grow food? No, no land. So Vinoba told the story of the previous village. And a man stood up and said, ah, I too, in the name of Gandhiji, you know, I would give how much land? 20 families, 100 acres I will give. And 
He went home and asked his family. By the time Vinoba got to the conference, he had collected 2,200 acres of land. And he told the story to the Gandhi followers. And that began in 1951, the Indian land reform movement. And for 10 years afterward, Vinoba Bhavi and his followers walked through every province and every state and every district in India and collected 14 million acres of land voluntarily that was given to the poorest families of India. He didn't know how he was going to respond or what he was going to do. He went and he allowed himself to be open and he listened. From Meher Baba, he says, the scope of service is not limited to heroic acts, great gestures, huge donations to public institutions. They also serve who express their love in little things, a word that gives courage to a broken heart, a smile that brings hope in the midst of gloom is as much service as heroic sacrifice. A glance that wipes out bitterness from the heart is also service, although there may be no thought of service in it. When taken by themselves, all these things seem to be small, but life is made up of many small things. And if these small things were ignored, life would not only be unbeautiful, it would be unbearable. So it is this capacity to be where we are and to respond that is the spirit of the Bodhisattva. And that grows in us as we discover the heart's capacity for compassion. That it's possible in any circumstance, no matter how difficult, no matter how trying, that it's possible to find within ourselves, maybe not right away, but at some point, love, connectedness, forgiveness, compassion, little and big ways. It was really beautiful to hear Ramna speak at this homeless shelter because there was some hundreds of people and it's 80 beds and it's really a very wonderful program. And he rolled in in his wheelchair and he looked around and half the people there were the volunteers and the staff and so forth. And he said, you know, in his now from the stroke, he speaks very slowly. He said, you know, here I am in this wheelchair. He said, and I wrote this book bestseller, how can I help? He said, you're all helpers, aren't you? He laughed. He said, yeah, I was a helper for a while. He said, and now I need to write a new book. How can I be helped? (laughs) Because I need people in the middle of the night to help me to the toilet. And I need people to get me out of bed and to bathe me and to put me to sleep. And he said, they're just roles, you know, when you look at the people coming in these doors. I mean, they're not different than you. They're just at a different time. He said, you can look at it from the ego point of view and say who's better and who's worse. But if you look in the eyes of the soul of another being, you know, you let drop all these pretensions and personality and costume. Who's helping who? Who's helping who? It was really beautiful. So the spirit of the bodhisattva is to be able to see with those kind of eyes in a moment. Even a difficulty can be transformed, even the littlest one. You know, this poem I read last year, I like it because it's so beautifully calligraphied by Lloyd Reynolds. A bug crawls across the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. I remember Kalarumbache going around the aquarium in Boston and just blessing all the fishes. Oh, money, pardon me, whom may you be awakened. May you be enlightened. The sharks and the eels and stuff like that. It's fantastic. What a way to move through the world. To see through the costumes, you know, because we're all souls in drag, basically. So it's knowing that they're suffering and not turning away from it. 
discovering, turning the compass of the heart toward bringing compassion and awakening in every circumstance. The spirit of the Bodhisattva, this kind of response, is also one of great simplicity. There is no formula and there is no guru or no teacher or no master who can tell you how to live your life because nobody's ever lived your life before. It's phenomenal. It's an uncharted stream. There is no authority. You know, whether how to be in a monastery or how long you should nurse your children or how to parent or how to drive. I mean, we have to find our own bodhisattva way. And what it requires is this kind of respect and sensitivity and recognizing that how we live does have an impact on all other beings. Each moment what we do affects everyone else. You know, in one breath, scientifically, the likelihood that in one breath there is a molecule of Julius Caesar's dying breath is 99 times out of 100 likely to be true. I mean, we're all breathing the same air over and over again, and we're all recycling the same water. We're recycling Julius Caesar, you know. <laughs> and I remember going to this workshop with Stan and Christina Groff. We were teaching at Esalen, and this person who had this terribly abusive history of childhood and was weeping and healing and working through all of this, and finally came to some place of release and the glimmer of forgiveness of something from years ago that was terribly hard to forgive, you know, but it was really a major kind of freeing of their heart. And then they went home. They hadn't heard from this person in, you know, 30 years. And they got home and they opened their mailbox and there was a letter from that person. And it was dated from that day that that had happened in their inner process. You know, everybody's heard stories like these because we really aren't separate. It's so mysterious. I like to tell that story from my friend Rodney Smith, the hospice worker, who, uh, um, in Seattle, who had um, a couple of people come into his office and say, you know, we have a problem because our father's here and he's just on the verge of dying. But we received a phone call last night that his younger brother had died in a car accident and we don't know whether to tell him or not, whether to disturb his death, his dying or, or not. And they thought about it and they decided, let him have a peaceful death, don't tell him. So Rodney and these two adult children went in and sat with the man for a little while and then he looked at them and said, don't you have something to tell me? What do you mean? He said, well, my brother, he died. And they said, how did you know? And he said, oh, I've been talking to him all morning. You know, and then he finished up his business with his children and died. So you hear that kind of story, and it's true. And you think, oh, the Tibetans have it right, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, go into the light, you know, there's a much better map than what we usually think of. But another story for you. Stephen Levine working with young children, as he did hospice work. So one day this young boy who was dying of cancer kind of a couple of near-death experiences, and he came back, Stephen sitting with him, he said, I saw the light. Oh, wonderful, said Stephen. You know, was anybody there? Oh, yeah, my grandfather at first was there. It was so beautiful. And then Raphael came. Raphael, said Stephen. You know, thinking Archangel Raphael, right? He said, yeah, it turns out Raphael was, this was about 10 years ago or so, was the kind of wisdom figure for the teenage mutant ninja turtles that this boy <laughs> loved, right? This was Raphael. Raphael came, and he was taking me into the light. Okay, so how do you interpret this, right? Does this mean that we only see our sort of disordered dis delusions when we die, our imagination? Or does it mean that the figures that we hold dear are the ones that our consciousness projects onto the light that we see. Anybody know? <laughs> when I was in school in science class, my, one of my science teachers held up a baseball and said, if this baseball is the size of our whole solar system 
you know, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Saturn, all the way out to Pluto, huge, hundred million, however million miles it was. If this baseball is the size of our solar system, how big would our galaxy be? Our one galaxy. Somebody said, as big as a mountain. No. As big as the whole city. No. She said, as big as the United States of America, the whole North America. This is our solar system. That's how big our galaxy is. Hundreds of billions of galaxies we can see. Where did they come from? I mean, what is this? It's so mysterious. It is, isn't it? I mean, don't you think so? So the idea of the bodhisattva isn't that you understand everything or even very much. It's more like the Christian teaching of the cloud of unknowing. It's not having some idea of how things are supposed to be, but it's discovering that we are awake in this moment, in this reality, and that our heart can embrace the whole of this universe, that our eyes can see what's true, and that we can respond in this mystery with compassion, that we can awaken. It's a fantastic thing. And a good friend of mine, who is a teacher and a practitioner for years who I admire, um, who's written a number of books on various topics. Actually, it's Roger Walsh, um, uh, books on Buddhism and shamanism and Christian mysticism. Anyway, one time Roger, scholar as he is, read through the entire multi-volume encyclopedia of religion. You know, from um, Ahura Mazda to Zoroastrianism, you know, with ancient Sumerian and the Mayan and the Basque and the Vajrayana and the, you know, um, all of them, the Sunni Muslims put in. And each religion was described as um, the belief of millions of people, often for centuries, that explain good and evil and where the world came into being, one after another, stories and explanations. And I said, so what did you learn from this? And he said, what I learned was that all of these were ideas that human beings had placed on this mystery to explain it to ourselves. But behind this veil of ideas, and not very far behind, in a moment we can sense it, is the reality of life itself. The bodhisattva doesn't attempt to figure it all out, but moves through it, again with this compass of compassion and presence and wakefulness, a very simple spirit. And with this openness comes a deep respect. A friend of mine who sits here at Spirit Rock sometimes, Lisa Hamburger is her name, and she is the primate keeper at the San Francisco Zoo. So she arranged for my daughter's elementary school oh, some years ago, to go and visit the chimps and the gorillas. It was really great, and I got to go with them. And so we went to meet, shake hands with the chimps and stuff. It was really pretty cool. And then she was going to introduce all the kids to the silverback, to the big gorilla and the other gorillas. In the... And she said, do you know how to approach a gorilla? Which is sort of like some joke you'd hear in elementary school, right? <laughs> Carefully, when you say, or whatever. <laughs> But she said, no, no, because the gorillas are there and all these people are walking back and forth all day. She said, you have to, to get a gorilla's attention, you have to approach them respectfully. And so the kid said, well, how do you do that? She said, well, you should hunch over a little bit so you're not standing up too tall and not look them right in the eye, but lower your eyes a little bit, you know. Um, And then when you get close, um, before you speak, what's polite in gorilla language is to just clear your throat like you want to speak. So all these little kids kind of hunched up to near where the gorillas were, and all these other people are going by, you know, like that, and the gorilla's busy doing and paying no attention, and they go up like that, and they go, <coughs> you know, and the gorilla looks up and turns over like you, you asked for, so you called my name, you know, and walked over and looked at them, and there was this whole kind of dialogue that happened. With the openness of a bodhisattva is this quality of respect. I like to tell that story of the little eight-year-old kid who went out to the restaurant with a family and friends, you know. And everybody's ordering their meal, and the kid's last. And the waitress says, well, what will you have for dinner? And um, he says, I'd like a, uh, 
hot dog and fries and uh, some root beer. And his mother said, he'll have the meatloaf and mashed potato with carrots and a glass of milk. And the waitress pauses for a moment and looks back at him and says, um, would you like ketchup or mustard on your hot dog? And then walks away. And he looks around the table at all the adults and he says, you know what? She thinks I'm real. Right? All beings in the world thrive on respect. Your partners and lovers, students, and teachers and parents and children, your gardens, your customers, your boss. Um, the quality of the bodhisattva is discovering this capacity of heart for attention and presence and freedom in the midst of all things that really respects what's in front of us. And with that, we have the ability to bless. And blessings are, are such a beautiful thing to give your blessings to another being. It doesn't mean in some you know, fancy, um, visible way, but it's really the offering of the well-wishing of your heart. So Yeats, sitting in London, midlife, my 50th year, here he is, a middle-aged man, had come and gone. I sat, a solitary man in a crowded London shop, an open book, an empty cup on the marble tabletop. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed, and twenty minutes more or less, it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. Just that simple. It's really lovely when you read the Buddhist tradition in the spirit of bodhisattvas because you see so many different styles. There's the warrior style and the midwife style. You know, there's Anattapindika who was the disciple of the Buddha who was a businessman. And there was this beautiful park that would have made a great monastery and he decided you know, that this would be the place for the Buddha, in fact, where the Buddha did make his monastery for 25 years. And he went to the prince who owned it and said, I would buy such a beautiful place, the most beautiful park in, outside of Benares, for the Buddha, my teacher, to have. And the prince said, you know, you would have to cover this park with gold for me to sell it. I love it so much. And Anattapindika said, sold, you know like some Silicon Valley merchant or something like that. <laughs> Cover it with gold, I'll take it, you know? And he gave it to the Buddha, and he was the person who created some of the most beautiful places of practice um, at the time of the Buddha. And that was his particular role as a bodhisattva. Um, and in that tradition, Goenka, who was a well-known Vipassana teacher from Burma and India, who was born into this vastly wealthy family, um, and gave up that business life, which he had done for many, many years, and become a teacher and taught 100,000 students meditation over the years in the most wonderful way. Um, and his teacher, Uba Kin, was a cabinet minister in Burma who, would, who ran the treasury department and the labor department, three or four different departments as well, and made them all meditate in the morning. He also ran the tax service of Burma, made them all sit and meditate and take the precepts to not kill and steal and lie in the morning before they began their day's work. So those are one form of bodhisattva. Then there are the yogis in the caves, you know, um, and there are the grandmothers, the bodhisattva grandmothers. I mean, I think of uh, Kathy Sneed, who's this very wonderful African-American woman who did the prison garden project that started in San Francisco jail because she saw so many people whose lives were being wasted. And San Francisco jail used to have a little farm in it and she, all kind of now just weeds and stuff. And she went in there and she was so heartbroken by the loss of soul of so many beings. And she collected from the community rakes and hoes and seeds and started the garden project. Um, and many, many people in the prison and in jail began to work on their garden plots and plant seeds. And as they did, it began to change their lives. You know, she writes about these great big guys saying, don't step on my little plants, and things like <laughs> really tending them. It's really true. And it got to be so much so, the, the wardens and the guards and people saw the changes, that it happened that a number of people, as they left prison, 
to go back in the world so missed their gardens that they committed other crimes or broke parole so they could get back in to take care of their gardens. So then she started the neighborhood garden project. For, you know. There are a lot of saints in the world, um, and I think we're surrounded by them, really. And sometimes it's very dramatic, like Aung San Suu Kyi, who's this Burmese woman who's now under house arrest, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, who can't leave her home for the last eight years. Her husband died in England, and the government would have allowed her to go to sit at her husband's bedside, but they wouldn't have allowed her back into Burma, and she wouldn't do it. She just said, I have to stay here because I also, um, I'm the mother for the people of Burma as well as for my own family. Or this man, Vedran Smaljovic, who was the cellist. This is a picture of him playing in the bombed-out library, National Library of Sarajevo in Bosnia. And he would go out, even in the shelling, every day in the square and play music to the people of Sarajevo that they wouldn't lose heart in the midst of the war. So those are the big dramatic ones. Um, but it's not just that way. I mean, I feel like the, the world lives from the energy of bodhisattvas. And we offer one another many thousand moments of respect or pause or tenderness or care in our families, in our driving, in our work, over and over and over again. Meister Eckhart said, the outward work will never be puny if the inward work is great. And part of the invitation of meditation, coming here to practice the practice of mindfulness and loving compassion, is to sit and clear ourselves, to release the busyness, the fears, the complexity. Not that they're not there, but to somehow get bigger than that, to step out of them, to rest in our breath, to allow the space of mind to open, to feel the heart. And then from that place to see that it just is a dance. We're all in this dance together. Where are you going? To your grave, yes, that's true. That same gate, as Rumi said, what's the hurry? Why all this possessiveness when we're all going to go through the same gate? To rest in that reality, to see that life changes and we are allowed the grace of certain days. And that what matters is not imitation. Nobody else can tell you how to do it. As Martha Graham said, there is a vitality, a life force, an energy that is translated through you into your life action. And because there is only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist but be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good you are or how valuable or how you compare with others. It is your business to keep the channel open. Just that simple. If we stop and allow silence, inner listening, understanding, there is a fundamental beauty in us that wants to come out. It does. You know, and we see also the forces of greed and hate and fear and racism and prejudice in the world around us. It's really true. But there is another truth that's bigger than that, that wants to come through us. You are all bodhisattvas. That is, that as soon as you start your path, you can't go back. It's too late. I mean, what are you going to do? Go cultivate greed and hatred and delusion? (laughs) Even if you begin a little bit, it's too late. 
You're on the... I mean, you can forget, but only for a certain while. You can't go back. So I'm glad we're on the path together. Trailing my stick, I go down to the garden's edge. Spring floods have washed away the planks of the bridge. Shouldering, shouldering sandal, I wade in the narrow stream. I dabble in the flow, delighted by the shallowness of the water, gaze at the flagging, admire how firm the stones are. The point in life is to know what's enough. Why envy those other world immortals? With the happiness held in one inch square heart, you can fill the whole space between heaven and earth. Let's sit for a minute. And sit not to get anything or make anything or be anything, but just to breathe and be alive and feel and love. What an amazing thing just to be human. We kind of forget it as we run around, you know, fulfilling our schedules. A few announcements and then a chant before we go out into the evening. There's a volunteer workday this Saturday, April 8th from 10 to 4 for gardens and work on this beautiful land and so forth. If you want to come and serve in that way, we'd love to have you. We're also looking for a caretaker for someone who wants to live at Spirit Rock and be part of the community and help take care of the land, so let us know if that's possible. On May 10th, the series that's Eastern-Western Psychology that we've had in the past years will be starting up again with Roger Walsh, who I mentioned in the talk tonight, who's a, a, a psychiatrist and yogi and, and writer and so forth, speaking about the wedding of Eastern and Western Psychology. We'll have flyers for that later. Um, and the last announcement is when you leave, um, please be respectful or careful in the parking lot. And when you go out, make sure to turn right. Don't turn left on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard. And when you go then to turn left into Woodacre and go around the circle, do it rather than making a little U-turn there because it's dangerous and people have almost crashed their cars and gotten hurt or died. And we promised the county that we'd have a lot of people here, but we would be careful with our cars so we didn't hurt anybody, especially us. Not, and us is, of course, everybody, right? Um, so turn, I know it takes about two more minutes, God. Turn right, turn left, go around through Woodacre, breathe, um, make it your practice. So then before we leave, a simple chant. Um, and it's the chant, Namo. In India, you meet someone and you say, Namaste, I honor the divine in you. Um, or actually what it means is, I see you. You know, I see that which is beyond all the costumes and who you really are, who I really am. Um, and the root of that, Namaste, is this word, Namo, which means to bow to or pay respects. So let's chant Namo, and as we do, you can imagine what you'd like to bow to and in yourself, in those around, in the world, and those you love. Um, we'll chant Namo nine times, 
and then we'll go out into the evening. So, na mo na. blessings alive in this week and see the Buddha in every being you meet. Thank you. See you next week. <laughs> next week I think is up in the new meditation hall. Good night.